Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with Episcopal Bishop Michael Curry and Russell Moore of the Southern Baptist Convention. There is, as always, a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Good morning, friends, and welcome. My name's Randy Hollerith, and I'm the Dean of Washington National Cathedral. It gives me great pleasure to welcome you to this important conversation on faith, compassion, and healing our national divides. We are thrilled to be able to partner with the National Institute for Civil Discourse and my friend Keith Allred to bring you this program today. We're also incredibly grateful to Krista Tippett for hosting today's conversation. We are all huge fans of her work. If you'll permit me, I'd like to begin today's program with a prayer. Uh, This prayer for the whole human family comes from our uh, Episcopal tradition. And if prayer is something important in your life, I hope you'll join with me today. Let us pray. O God, you made us in your own image and redeemed us through Jesus, your son. Look with compassion on the whole human family. Take away the arrogance and hatred which infect our hearts. Break down the walls that separate us. Unite us in bonds of love and work through our struggle and confusion to accomplish your purposes on earth, that in your good time all nations and races may serve you in harmony around your heavenly throne. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Washington National Cathedral is a house of prayer for all people, and we are committed to being a source of hope and reconciliation and healing in our nation. We believe that every human being is a beloved child of God and that our current national divisions often obscure that truth in favor of a shallower and more ideological labeling. We are all much more complicated than our political or theological beliefs and our healing as a nation can only begin if we're willing to genuinely listen to and honor one another in all our fullness. One of the fundamental roles of the cathedral is to serve as a convener of important conversations to address key issues of the day through the lens of faith. Our faith traditions have much wisdom to offer, and I'm excited about this conversation. Before I turn this over to Keith Allred, it gives me great pleasure to introduce one of our guests this morning, the Most Reverend Michael Bruce Curry, presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church. Bishop Curry elected in 2015 is the 27th presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church. While he is the first African-American to serve in that role, he is also the most well-known and best-beloved presiding bishop the church has had in more than 100 years. Thank you for being with us, Bishop Curry. Keith, I'll turn it over to you. Thank you, Dean Hallerith. Good to be with you, and welcome to everybody else joining us today. I'm Keith Allred from the National Institute for Civil Discourse. We were founded by the University of Arizona in 2011 in the aftermath of the tragic Tucson shooting that included Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords. Our mission is to build our nation's capacity to engage our differences constructively. 
We are really pleased to partner with the Washington National Cathedral to convene this conversation, especially in this fraught historical moment. Uh, so thank you all of you for joining the conversation. We really believe that the American people will be our saving grace and know that we aren't as divided as many would have us believe. Thanks to those of you who have sent questions in advance, just as a reminder, given the size of our audience, we won't be taking questions during the event. This conversation between respected national faith leaders reminds us that we cherish common values and that it's worthwhile to engage our important differences with dignity and respect. I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Russell Moore, President of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. We appreciated uh, that a member of the ERLC team was part of our national faith convening we held in 2019 that created our Golden Rule 2020 program. And finally, we are so pleased that a woman who really needs no introduction on being creator Krista Tippett is here to moderate a thoughtful conversation about where we are in this moment and about the role of faith in healing our national divides. Krista, over to you. Oh, I'm, I want to thank the National Cathedral and the National Institute for Civil Discourse for opening this space for a faithful and forward-looking conversation, which I'm approaching as, uh, as an exercise in 21st century public theology. And I am so honored and delighted to be here with, with, with uh, Bishop Curry and Dr. Moore and all of you who are watching. And although there won't be uh, a space for for to bring you into this conversation, we I, I am endeavoring to do so. There were some questions and 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 observations submitted in advance, and I'm going to bring those in throughout um, this dialogue between the three of us. And I want to begin um, briefly by meeting each of you as human beings, um, and also and getting a sense of 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 the grounding and the history behind your vocation. Um, Bishop Curry, I know that you grew up a, as they say, a cradle Episcopalian. Your father was an Episcopal priest, although in, in Buffalo, New York, although you also had a Baptist uh, side of your family in North Carolina. I wonder if you would describe something that is at the heart of, of Episcopal and Anglican tradition that has formed you and is forming your presence now to the life of our country and our world. Well, thank you, Krista, and thank you, Dr. Moore, it just, and everyone. It's great to be with you. You know, I mean, it's it's really interesting. One wouldn't expect that um, growing up um, as a Black kid um, and the Episcopal tradition, the Anglican way, would actually have a crossover, but they do. Um, as a kid growing up, I remember uh, my grandmother and Aunt Lillian in particular would often say on different occasions for different reasons, never let any man drag you so low as to hate him. Mm -hmm. Now, I didn't know as a kid they were actually, and I'm not sure they knew either, they were actually quoting Booker T. Washington who said that. Um, but I grew up in a context where people really did believe that the kind of love that Jesus of Nazareth taught is the kind of love that can change personal life and social life. They really did believe that. And it was just ingrained in me. Well, that's deeply rooted in the Anglican or Episcopal way of Christianity that um, that the love of God is the motive for everything God does. I mean, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I mean, it's just all over the place. That's not unique to Anglicanism or Episcopalians, but it's deeply rooted in there. Um, and so both my growing up as a black kid 
um, and as an Episcopalian uh, way of being Christian, centered on the way of love as the key to life itself. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Moore, I, I, I think it's right that you are a Mississippian born and bred. Yes. yes. Um, did you also grow up Southern Baptist? Is this the church of your childhood? Uh, it is. I, I grew up in a family that was half Southern Baptist, half Roman Catholic. My father had, uh, my grandfather had been the pastor of the Southern Baptist Church to which I uh, was born into and, and belonged all of my life. Well, that, uh, having grown up in Oklahoma Southern Baptist, I know that what you just said was a very big deal. <laughs> um, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, that was a divide. That was a chasm yeah. a few yes. few decades ago. Um, so, yeah, I wonder if you would describe something that has formed you uh, in Southern Baptist tradition and is and is forming your presence now to our public life? Well, I would say, and it's probably of, of no surprise as an evangelical Christian that that would be the gospel, uh, which is uh, the understanding of good news that God uh, has, uh, has uh, presented a way of redemption to the world through Jesus Christ. So that changes the way that I see myself as a sinner in, in need of uh, reconciliation that came through the cross and resurrection, but also how I see other people, uh, which is as those who are created in the image of God and not ultimately my opponents. Uh, we, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, uh, the Apostle Paul said, but against principalities and powers in the heavenly places. So that view of reality, I think, is, is what uh, changes and shapes my way of seeing everything. And you um, said to me as we corresponded a little bit before today that um, your concern for a more civil public square is not in spite of your evangelicalism, but because of it. Um, and you noted your concern about how vulnerable so many of us, all of us, seem to have become to the false idea. These are your words to the false idea that one's public denunciation of one's opponents is indicative of the depth of one's own convictions, whether to the gospel or to social justice or to family values or whatever. Yes, yes. And I'm, I hate the word civility largely, although I will take it. I understand, uh, understand what people mean by it, but I think it's too low of a bar. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think what the scripture calls us to is to both conviction, uh, not a, a evaporating of our, our differences, uh, but also to kindness, uh, an active love for even those people who disagree with us uh, completely. So I think sometimes when we say civility, what we mean is pretending as though we don't have differences mm-hmm. and being polite. And of course, I grew up in a in a kind of Southern context where one could be brutal uh, with uh, with a very strategically worded pr- politeness uh, in a way yeah. that uh, they could word things that could just dismiss the other person. I think we need to have more debate, not not less. And so as someone who really does believe uh, that the scriptures are authoritative, I really do believe that I'm going to stand uh, at the judgment seat of Christ and give an account uh, for my entire life, uh, including the way that I related to people that I may prefer to pretend are invisible at the moment but are not invisible to God. I think that's an important thing for all of us to keep in mind. Mm. Bishop Curry, something you you said to me is that, um, or wrote to me, is that you said, deep in my soul, I believe, believe that e pluribus unum is not simply a quaint Latin saying, but a moral and spiritual imperative for the life of the human family. You said, learning to live together as brothers, sisters, and siblings 
means learning to live together with God-given and social diversity and with real and profound differences. So very much speaking the same language as, as Dr. Moore in that sense. Yeah, and, and I have to admit, um, as, as with Dr. Moore, that conviction arises um, from my experience and convictions about faith. I mean, the, you know, that, that um, I, I just believe that, that Jesus of Nazareth came among us to show us the way to be reconciled with God and reconciled with each other, to be in a relationship with God and a relationship with each other. And, you know, in so doing, kind of was showing us the way to become what God has dreamed from the very beginning, that we might be God's human family, um, um, the family of God, um, and that we would learn to do that. Um, Cain and Abel um, come to mind, um, that we would learn to live differently with each other. Um, you know, Dr. King said, we will either learn to live together as brothers and sisters or we will perish together as fools. And he was right. E pluribus unum is the motto, if you will, of, of the United States um, from many one um, is a vision of this country and it's what it could be. But it's bigger than that. It's part of God's vision of the entire human family learning to live together um, in love and charity with all of our differences, holding on to our integrities and yet being able to be in relationship with each other as children of God made in God's image and likeness um, who have differences in variety. I've been married to my wife 40 years and good Lord, we don't agree on a whole lot. Don't tell her I told y'all that, but it's true. We don't agree and she's always right, of course. Um, but the truth is learning to live in relationship with difference mm -hmm. is called maturity, <laughs> The human race must move toward maturity, what we call maturity in Christ, as Paul says in Ephesians. And I believe that's rising up to spiritual maturity that makes, like the old slaves used to say, where there's plenty good room, plenty good room for all God's children. Yeah, I, 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 I love that. I, I think it's, it's interesting when, when one speaks of love in the public square, there's a sense that you're talking about something soft, but in fact— what we know about how love works in our real lives is the hardest thing of all. And it's very much about learning to disagree and staying in relationship. I think um, one of the things that came through so clearly in the comments and questions that came in from this incredible spectrum of humanity that is with us by this miracle of technology, um, and, and this won't surprise you, um, but I'm, I'm going to name it because I think we have to name where we are, where we are. We need to keep naming this pain and confusion and fear that is that is among us, um, e even people who want to move beyond it. So, you know, and I, th I think all of what it boils down to, there's so much that comes together to me in the question of how can we now proceed with common life or something like healing in the absence of what feels like any common ground to stand on? Um, so... You know, um, there's, you know, there's, there's a, people have said, you know, we can't even agree on facts. How can we converse? Mm. Um, how can I be in relationship with people who have been demeaning to me or threatening to me in, or to what I'm about in the last years? Um, here too, someone said, we know there's hard work ahead. I'm having trouble with my computer. Um, I'm unclear, but to be honest, I'm unclear how I can help. In my muni municipality, in my church, most of us voted the same way. How can we discern what is ours to do? 
Uh, another person wrote, why would I put myself potentially in harm's way, for example, engaging with someone whose views tell, tell them to deny my personhood or that my pain isn't real? So I'd really love for you both pastorally as much as theologically to respond to to the reality of, of, of how we're feeling as a country right now. Which one of us would you like to start with, Kristen? You start, (laughs) Dr. Moore. Okay. (laughs) Well, I I think we we actually do have some common ground uh, that that often we choose not to see. And some of that has to do with the fact that there's something in fallen human nature that wants to be self-protective. I think I mentioned to you before we we came on today about uh, Eugene Peterson, someone we both uh, admired. Uh, talking about an exoskeleton uh, that we tend to put around ourselves. And I think that's that's mm. just true of fallen human nature. And one of the ways we can get around that is to try to find a small area uh, of common agreement and then work out from there uh, to our, our disagreements. And so finding those areas where we actually do see things uh, the same way. I think of, for instance, the way that Jesus often is using parables to go around people's defenses to mm-hmm. get at the, the heart of, of what it is he's, he's saying to them, or the prophet Nathan uh, with King David, who comes in and goes around that self-protective uh, sort of a conscience in order to talk about uh, a man with a ewe lamb that's been taken from him by, uh, by someone wealthier. I think we can find those places and then move forward as human beings who disagree, including about some really important and significant things. Mm-hmm and are willing to have those conversations without uh, suggesting that every point of disagreement is is necessarily weaponized. I sometimes wonder if we could even, in the absence of knowing whether we share any answers <clears throat> or any convictions, <clears throat> sorry, if we could just get gather around some questions we have in common or gather around the love we have mm-hmm. for our children in common. Mm-hmm. Yes. we got a lot in common. I mean, we really do. Uh, First of all, we all inhale oxygen and exhale carbon dioxide. (laughs) We have a lot in common. Um, We happen to inhabit the same planet. Mm -hmm. Um, You you cut us, we all bleed. I mean, the reality, there's a lot in common. And a lot of times, I I met a a priest out uh, out in Utah a couple years ago uh, who, after the 2016 election, um, was bringing together, brought together people in the town where he lives, red and blue, um, um, and brought them together, um, and and not to debate issues, um, mm-hmm. although they engaged issues. He invited them, and he had a design for it. Invited folk to engage the issue, not from the, not from trying to convince the other, but tell us the story of your life that brought you mm-hmm. to the conclusion that you happen to hold. That shifts that creates common ground because everybody there's a story my daddy used to say don't judge a book by its cover read the book because there's a story there and that story becomes some common ground i mean a friend of mine said one of the reasons god told moses to take off his shoes um in exodus 3 um he said because god was about to tell moses his story and Mm -hmm. whenever someone reveals the story of their life that ground on which they're standing is holy ground that's the common ground we're human and we've got a story. And if I listen to yours and you to mine, we don't have to, we won't agree on a whole lot, but we'll understand each other. And that's common, produces common ground. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Moore, do you want to add anything to that? 
Well, I would say one of the things that I see um, actually driving some of the best expressions of this in my own uh, tribe is something that I, I think uh, many people would find counterintuitive, and that's evangelism. Uh, there are many more secular Americans and, and religious Americans who would see evangelism as being itself uh, wrong and, and, uh, and some sort of narrowness. Uh, but for people who believe that uh, the way to God is through Jesus Christ and who are actually seeking to evangelize their neighbors, not just those who talk about it, but those who are in conversation with their neighbors, these tend to be the people who also uh, are those who are loving and not demonizing their neighbors. They know them, and they mm-hmm. see them as mm-hmm. fellow human beings mm-hmm. who can be persuaded. I mean, part of the problem that we have in American life right now is that very few of us actually believe that anyone else can be persuaded. We believe other people could be coerced or, uh, or could back down and that we can play to our own tribe. But very few of us actually believe the person I'm talking to might just one day be uh, someone who, who is with me. Uh, that, that's something that we've lost in American life. But uh, a truly uh, conservative evangelical view of evangelism believes the spirit is powerful enough that the person who may hate me and hate the gospel right now may well be the next Augustine uh, who, who turns around and is the one who is leading my future children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren uh, to faith. And that's what I often say to people who will say, who is the next Billy Graham uh, out there in the world? The next Billy Graham might be passed out drunk in a frat house right now, or the next Billy Graham might be uh, screaming at uh, religious people from the other side of of a protest line. And the gospel can change people radically. And so if you have that understanding of human life, then you really do believe that persuasion is possible. There's an intelligence um, behind that about the human condition, which is actually one of the things I treasure so much about theology, um, uh, the, a wisdom about the human condition, which is, you know, for all the energy we've spent in these, not just these last years, these last decades, trying to change each other's minds, there's an understanding um, in religious tradition that, that what always happens is that the heart changes mm-hmm. and then minds mm-hmm. open. Mm-hmm. Um you know, something else I feel has not been named enough, loudly enough, and, and put out for us to grieve and, and approach is the way we looked at the maps of our country on election night. There's, you know, some things get colored in red and blue, or there are red states and blue states, but it's it's a picture of fracture, and it's also a picture of interwovenness, right? These These divisions... They don't just run state to state or county to county. They run community to community. They run neighborhood to neighborhood, sometimes house to house. They run through our families. They run through our lives. And they run through our religious traditions, which are gatherings of human beings and therefore microcosms. So each of you has been a bridge person as your traditions have grappled with uh, divisions and what feel like irreconcilable differences that are also alive in our culture. And I, I'd love to draw you out a little bit on what that takes um, and, you know, what you've learned, what you can share about what it means to reframe and set these divides on different ground uh, by being with the help of religious values. So, Bishop Curry, you 
have been right in the middle of very vitriolic divisions within the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion um, globally over same-sex marriage. And you have also been in very public uh, conversations that I would say are marked by friendship and respect with, for example, bishops on the other side um, of this subject. Um, you know, here's something you 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 have you said um, in one of those dialogues: the inclusion that is at the heart of the gospel that welcomes gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender people is the same inclusive, outstretched arms of Jesus that welcomes those who disagree with us. Yeah. I wonder if you just just take us yeah. a little bit inside that what you've learned that 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 we can all learn from. You know, I mean, I mean, the, 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 well, I, it goes back for me to the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt have no other gods but me. God, only God is God, none of the rest of us are, which um, may come as news in some respect, but it's a great relief. I'm not God, I don't have to pretend to be. Um, and therefore, humility is a posture um, that comes with my humanity. And I, one of the things I've really and I struggle with it, it's not easy to do this, is how do I stand and kneel at the same time in my relationships with others, especially with those who disagree with me or I disagree with them? Because I've got to kneel before them as someone created in the image of God, a child of God just like me, um, loved of God equally. Love is an equal opportunity employer, and the love of God is equal. So I've got to kneel before them in a sense. I mean, and yet at the same time, I must stand with the integrity so that humility and integrity go together. To do both of those at the same time doesn't mean you abdicate your convictions, whatever they have to be. But one of the convictions is that you're my sister. You're my brother. I, I, I got to love you enough to seek the greatest good that's possible in our relationship and in our context. Um, and that is a conviction. That's the conviction that that led and moved people like John Conyers. That is a conviction that led and moved people who moved, tried to change America through nonviolent means of resistance and social change. Um, that is the conviction that led a Desmond Tutu and a Nelson Mandela to, to avoid a bloodbath in South Africa, uh, to do truth and reconciliation, to redeem justice, but at the same time to find ways to bring people together. And so I've struggled with that and try as hard as I can. You know, I'm not, not, you know, I'm not perfect. The nice thing is I'm not Jesus. Jesus is Jesus. And so I'll, I'll follow him, but um, I've got to do my best to follow him. And what I've found is there are times when that is reciprocated. When I was at one of the conferences um, of the Anglican primates, um, the, the, uh, archbishops and presiding bishops from around the world. And this was a, a very uh, difficult one. Um, one, of, one of the primates um, who differed with me profoundly, um, the two of us got close in part um, because he had been a physician in a prior life. Um, and I had just recently had brain surgery. Mm. And each day he checked in with me. Michael, how are you doing? I said, I'm, I'm, I'm doing all right. And I checked back with him and we committed to pray for each other. Not the way some folks say, I'm going to pray for you. That's not a blessing. That doesn't mean they're about to bless you, but to really pray for you. People can do it. Now, I know everybody can't do that, but most people can. There's, there's, there's more right. good in, in most of us, and we can. Um, anyway, I'll stop there. Yeah. Yeah, we're not all called to be bridge people. 
Um, but some no. of us are. Some of us who are safe yeah. enough are. Um, yeah. Dr. Moore, so I just I want to say a little bit about your role because I think everybody understands, mostly understands what a bishop is. But you are mm-hmm. really the chief ethicist of the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, mm-hmm. The the your the work you're you're part of kind of the think tank. You attend to the difficult questions in the public square and inside the faith. And um, you, it's, this is the the Southern Baptist Convention Church is the largest Protestant denomination in the United States, um, for, for over fourteen million members, um, almost fifty thousand churches, but also very differently from, for example, the Episcopal Church. Um, right. Those are all independent churches. Yes. <laughs> right? Yes. So yes. to be chief ethicist uh, of that kind of 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 configuration is 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 challenging. And so you know, when to say that you've been a bridge person in that context and you really have been a bridge person especially in recent years in the in the Southern Baptist Convention's grappling with race in its in its history and its present. I want to read something that you said at the 2017 annual convention, which is the only time in the year when that when the whole Southern Baptist Church comes together. You said when we stand together as a convention and speak clearly, we are saying that white supremacy and racist ideologies are dangerous because they oppress our brothers and sisters in Christ. They oppress those who are made in the vision of God. They oppress our mission field. Even above and beyond that, unrepentant racism is not just wrong, unrepentant racism sends unrepentant racists to hell. So the um, the resolution you were you were arguing for was initially rejected, but it went on to overwhelmingly, nearly unanimously pass. Um, you have said that in your younger days, you were all too eager to fight like the devil to please the Lord. Um, yes. But yeah, talk to us, because what you did there is you made an argument, but it was an argument uh, embedded in the faith. Yes, and I think that's I think that's what's important is to have consciences that really are shaped by uh, one's convictions, and then to live those out as best as possible uh, consistently. Uh, and that means if we really do believe uh, that there is a day of judgment, then we have to speak uh, honestly about that. If we really do believe that all human beings are created in the image of God, then any suggestion uh, that that's not true is is an assault on the authority of Scripture. That doesn't mean, though, that we we have to uh, again evaporate arguments. I mean, Bishop Bishop Curry and I uh, would disagree very fundamentally on some of these questions that you just mentioned about sexuality. We probably couldn't serve together. Well, we couldn't serve together in the same uh, congregation or church. That doesn't mean that we have to see one another as uh, as enemies to be evaporated. Mm-hmm. Uh, rather, we can have what could be very strong uh, disagreements and, and arguments, but still listen to one another in the public arena. So I think there's a distinction between there are certain things that a church in carrying out its mission that we have to agree on. We have to be on the, on the same page on, on certain things. Uh, in a way that we don't expect those on the outside to necessarily understand or to agree with us uh, about. Um, Bishop Curry told the story about uh, coming together with his friend, Bishop, on the other side. I, I hate the way we right? it's so binary, yeah. on the other side of the issue. That's also a political forum, an issue. Um, but through uh, this matter of health 
And you have a wonderful story about a friendship with someone who's part of the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, which is actually a group that split away from the Southern Baptist Convention in part around some of these social issues, and that you came together around a shared love of Wendell Berry's poetry. Yes, uh, a pastor uh, who is uh, completely different than I am uh, theologically and, and probably politically. Uh, we both uh, we both were really affected by Wendell Berry and started uh, getting together to have coffee once a month. He used to joke, uh, "We'll we'll swap back and forth, and we'll be at the organic uh, uh, coffee a place one time and at Chick Fil A the next, so that we're each on our home <laughs> turf." Uh, okay. But but we would be able to have uh, have good conversations that really did get at uh, the hearts of our, our disagreements. And we would talk through our, our disagreements, but neither of us had an audience of our own tribe to which we were playing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I genuinely wanted to know, why do you think the things that you do? And here's why I believe the things that I, I believe. And he did the same. We didn't, uh, we didn't convince one another of uh, very many things, if anything, but we came to understand each other as as human beings mm-hmm. uh, and, and to build a friendship that way and one that, that I, I greatly valued. How did you discover that shared love of Wendell Berry's poetry? Uh, I think he's the one who initiated this because he had uh, he had seen some things that I'd written on uh-huh. uh, Wendell Berry and then talked to me. And we both had had known Mr. Berry and had some connections with him personally. And so that's that's kind of how it came together. Yeah, it's a great it's a great model. Um all right, I want to bring the voices of the people with us watching back in. Um, these are three questions. To me, they they work together, and I think they speak about what can public theology be for this time. Um, one person says, as a Christian on the biblical left, I am caught between the desire to bridge the gap with my kin and the Christian right and the mandate to stand in solidarity. Okay, to... to to bridge the gap with my kin on the Christian right and the mandate to stand in solidarity with folks on the margins and our more-than-human kin who I see being harmed. Uh, can you give some wisdom on how to live and act in the tension of these mandates? Um, second uh, voice, I had difficulty registering. They meant registering for this event because I was asked to characterize my political leanings on a left-to-right scale. I understand why you do this, but it seems to me that one way Christians can contribute to national healing is by encouraging us not to think of our positions in binary terms that have now turned into tribal identities. And a third voice, one of the takeaways from this election highlighted by some pundits is that many Americans subscribe to the politics of rage and blame. This is true of many on the left and the right. I seem to recall that many a biblical writer also struggled with who the question of who is at fault for my despair. How do we as humans and as people of faith present a counter narrative to this notion while maintaining compassion for the anger and despair? Um, I think those are excellent questions that are not to answer, but I, I would love to know, you know, how where they land in you and how you would respond to them. Well, I think that we have we have put uh, more weight upon these uh, tribal and especially political identities than they can bear, uh, because uh, we, we have sort of a, a sort of a, a vacuum in American life, particularly 
of meaning and of connection uh, that what I believe ultimately is, is answered in the gospel in a way that something has to take that place. And so some of these questions have become ultimate uh, mm-hmm. in, in ways that aren't just about, let's talk about what we disagree uh, about and how do we go from here, but who's stupid and evil and who's not. And, and that really just completely cuts off uh, the, the conversation. Are there stupid people and evil people? Yes. Uh, sometimes there's a combination of the two, but every conversation ultimately becomes that. And it, it's sort of, uh, I think about the pastors that I know who are exhausted right now in this time of COVID uh, because every single conversation uh, ends up being in their communities, some social media war mm. about masks or not masks or whether or not uh, what, what social distancing ought to look like, because it becomes not just do we think this is the best way to go, but who are we? Uh, those sorts of conversations, I think, are ultimately exhausting uh, to everyone involved. And I think the end result of it is not a heightened up conviction on either side. It's cynicism. It's the belief that ultimately nothing matters except for screaming into the void. That's a dangerous place to be as a society. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the struggles that I hear behind the, the, the questions and the comments are the struggle, I mean, that we all have, but but what kind of person do I want to be? Um, you know, old preachers used to say when I was growing up, um, you know, you look on headstones and graveyard and cemeteries and you see the name of the person and you see the year and date they were born and then a little dash in the year and date that they died. And the old preachers used to say, the question is not when were you born? You didn't have anything to do with that. When did you die? You probably didn't have much to do with that either. The question is, what did you do with your dash? Um, <laughs> that's the question. And and when I start there, not, not what did I do with my dash? What 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 is the living legacy I want to leave? What is what do I want to do with this life? Then I've got to ask myself the question: Who am I going to follow? What way am I going to follow and live to live this life? I believe that the way of Jesus is a challenge. It's not easy. It is about taking up a cross and following. It is about giving self for the greater good. It is about unselfish, sacrificial love becoming the way of life, just like Jesus, who didn't sacrifice his life on the cross for anything he could get out of it. He didn't do it to get famous. He didn't do it to make money because he clearly didn't make any money. Um, He didn't do it for that. He did it for the good and the well-being and the salvation and the hope and the liberation of others. That's what love looks like. And if I wanted, I want my dash on my headstone to say he may have made a lot of mistakes, but doggone it, he tried to live a life of love. That's what, now, if you want to do that, then then that's going to be struggle. That's not going to be easy. You don't believe me? Ask St. Paul, ask Peter, ask Mary Magdalene. I mean, they weren't the happiest group of fisher folk who ever came (laughs) around, you know? I mean, when you really think, look at the Bible carefully, um, they were the most disgruntled. I mean, they didn't even, Peter and Paul went at it. Look at Galatians. They went at it. Um, Peter called Paul out. I mean, Paul called Peter out. I mean, that's okay, but they figured out. By following this Jesus, by following his way of love, they actually found a way to live together 
um, in ways that they might not otherwise. I think that's true for us. Those um, who are on the left um, who stand for justice and stand for righteousness, I remind my friends, you know what? I agree with you, but justice by itself is not enough. Justice without mercy, read Micah, justice without love can turn into revenge, and that is not the way of God. That is not the social change we want. That is not something that reflects the kingdom, the reign of God, the beloved community that God dreams for us all. So I, you know, I like that psalm that says, set me upon a rock that is higher than I. Call me to something better than Michael's lowest self. Call me to my highest self and then help me learn how to rise. Would you offer up that saying from Micah, the prophet Micah, for everyone who doesn't know it? Oh, the teaching. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Um, that's what God is looking for. God, God's looking for you. Did the Bible is so clear? I love you know, First John chapter four verse seven. Uh, beloved, let us love one another because love is of God and those who do not love do not know God. Why? Because God is love. That is the most succinct, beautiful. Now, I'm going to be careful because Dr. Moore is a theologian. I'm just a preacher. But, <laughs> but that I think that is about the best definition of God that's going. Mm-hmm. God is love. Mm-hmm. Not love is God. God is love. And if we live in God and live in love, we will find ourselves in relationship with God and with each other. Hmm. Um, I have noticed that both of you, each of you has um, used the biblical story of the Samaritan um, as you have commented on uh, images, teaching, stories to work with of relevance to how we live together. And I, I just love to hear each of you speak a little bit about about that story as, as, as something for our life together now? Well, I'm always drawn to uh, what Frederick Beekner said about the way that we tend to want to go to parables as things that we can just squeeze out like juice from an orange mm. and, and toss aside the rind. But what Jesus is doing with the parables is engaging the person at every level, uh, not just here's the moral of the story, take this and go with it, but uh, here's how to engage the mind, the imagination, the conscience, uh, the will, and to put people into surprising situations. And I think that's what uh, Jesus' uh, parable of, of the good, what we call the Good Samaritan uh, actually is. He takes these assumptions that this rich, uh, this lawyer, uh, uh, teacher of the law, uh, held and said, you actually don't believe what it is that you say you believe by putting him into this uncomfortable uh, situation. And I think that's true. Uh, this is not just telling us you ought to be better people. It is speaking to us as sinners and saying uh, you're in need of redemption and then saying this is what this looks like to, to follow Christ and to see those people who are uh, invisible to you. Um, I think that's, uh, I, I think that what's What's extraordinary to me about the the story of the Samaritan is that uh, this was almost something that seemed incidental uh, mm-hmm. in the life of this Samaritan. He wasn't on the search for someone. He he stopped and saw this and cared, and also because of the level of fear. Uh, Martin Luther King said, and I think rightly, 
that one of the reasons that the priest and the Levite who passed by the man beaten on the side of the road probably would have done so is out of fear. Uh, If you see someone beaten on the side of the road, on a road to Jericho that wouldn't have had a police force, wouldn't have had electric lights, wouldn't have had cell service, you would have assumed I might be next. And so that sense of self-protection and risk aversion could lead to just walking on past. I think that's a temptation every single one of us uh, can face every single day of our lives. Hmm. Yeah. You know, it's one of those, you know, it, the, the parables of Jesus really are, um, they, they're um, uh, multifaceted. I mean, they can hit you at different times in your life and on your journey from a different angle. And of late, I'm very aware um, that um, the Good Samaritan, if you run the risk of translating it to today, change the characters today. So who's the Samaritan and who's the person beaten up on the side of the road? Mm. Um, um, and, and it's clear. And who is therefore neighbor to whoever it is beaten up on the side of the road? And I'd like to say we might want to retranslate um, the, the parable um, um, into the parable of the good Democrat. And it's a Republican on the side of the road. <laughs> okay. um, or the parable of the good Republican. And it's a Democrat. You see what I'm getting yeah. at? It's, I mean, you, could, you can change the parable of the Black Lives Matter and a police officer on the side of the road or the parable of a Black Lives Matter person and the police officer is the good Samaritan. My point is Jesus is flipping it. Who is neighbor? You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. Who is neighbor to the one who is hurt and wounded? And, you know, he's he was showing that Whatever the lawyer had in mind when he said, because he asked Jesus, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? That's what he, he was asking him. What do I do with my dash? Um, and, and, and Jesus said, the question is, who are you neighbor to, brother? Who are you neighbor to? That's what love of neighbor looks like. And I wonder if Jesus was saying is life is meant to be lived following his way as a Samaritan, as a good Samaritan. And if that begins to happen, imagine what a different society we'd have. Imagine what our political debates would be. Imagine we'd have some civil discourse. Yeah. We, 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 we disagree, but we'd pick each other up when we got to pick each other up and pour oil on our wounds and care for each other and figure out how are we going to do this together? We got to live together. You know, um, Shirley Chisholm said a long time ago, she said, you know, outside of the indigenous people, the First Nations people of the land, um, we all came over here on different ships, but we're all in the same boat now. And we are. Mm -hmm. And we might as well figure out how can we live together so that we all thrive? Mm -hmm. How can we do it? And we can. Dr. Moore, just do you want to add anything to that or? Well, I think that one of the things that strikes me in the parable of the Good Samaritan is the way that the uh, the teacher in the law st- starts to try to justify himself. You know, uh, maybe you should just tell the story, just because I feel I really we're yeah. we're talking about it as though everybody knows the story. Yeah, there there was a uh, a, a really uh, learned uh, teacher of the law who asked Jesus, "What must I do to inherit eternal life?" Uh, and Jesus essentially says, "Well, what do you think?" Uh, and he said, uh, you should love God and love neighbor as self. That, that sums up the, the commandments. And Jesus says, yes. But wanting to justify himself, he said, who is my neighbor? What, what are the asterisks that I can put uh, <laughs> okay. in here to exempt myself? Uh, and Jesus exposes all of this with this story of a man who's beaten on the side of the road. 
and one religious leader after the other passes by. But the one who stops is a Samaritan who would have been a despised figure uh, at the time. He's the one who uh, showed mercy to him and said, who was the neighbor to this man beaten? Not who is his neighbor. But who was he a neighbor to, Mm -hmm. this active sense of love, and turned everything on its head? And I find that, uh, that, 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 that intuition of wanting to say, how am I exempted? from these responsibilities is one that at least I grapple with often. Uh, I remember preaching through, uh, blessed are the the merciful for they shall be shown mercy and finding myself trying to find some exemptions to that in terms of people that I wanted to be angry uh, at at the moment. And I said, you know, what I'm doing here is exactly what I critique in theological liberalism. Uh, when I do, which is the idea, well, it says resurrection from the dead, but it can't mean that. Uh, I, I don't, uh, I, I'm somebody who, who knows that's not the way that it is to be, but I find myself doing the same thing mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to what uh, Jesus is commanding me to do. I'm a, I'm a sinner. And so one of the things that I've started doing since then is to say with every text of scripture that I come across, if I'm a sinner, then that means that there's going to be something in me that will try to resist the truth of what God is saying, where is it? And if I don't know uh, of anything, it's probably because I'm not, it's probably not because I'm perfectly holy and sanctified. It's probably because that's something that I've hidden from myself mm-hmm. and really needs to be explored to say, how do I uh, confront that in myself and turn it over for transformation? Mm. Um, I want to bring um, for one last time a voice from from our virtual space. Um, question was, what might it look like for the church to become a prophetic witness, address brokenness of our nation and world? And I and I think we've been that we've been delving into that. Um, but this really follows on that. How do we hold our own traditions accountable for honoring that teaching? And what do each of you look for from the other traditions to help in this work? Well, I would start, you know, I'd kind of, we'll go back to Micah. You know, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Um, there, There is in the Christian and the Jewish traditions a fundamental conviction that God cares about like the old song says, his eyes on the sparrow, and I know he watches me, that, that God is passionately concerned about the well-being of his children. And that 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 all that stuff in Matthew 25 and the parable of the you know last judgment, the sheep and the goats, um, where God is concerned um, uh, about, did you feed me when I was hungry? Did you clothe me when I was naked? Did you visit me when I was in prison? In other words, did you did you show me justice and mercy and kindness? Did you help me in my humanity when I needed help? That that's what judge, just judgment day is about. I mean, that's Jesus is telling a parable about judgment day, which I think is a way of talking about what matters to God. What matters to God is 
How have we treated each other? Because that's a reflection of what we really think about God. Mm -hmm. Um, How did we care for each other? How do we care for this world, this creation that we live in? That's what matters. Um, and, And so to be concerned about children being separated from their parents at the border of our country, to be concerned about finding ways that we can come together to be a better nation and, and finding ways that we will make sure that, that the poorest among us are cared for, that our children, that every child born into this country has an opportunity for it to become all that God dreams and intends for them. I got to fit. Christians can come to agreement, or not just Christians, but people of religious faith can come to some agreement and say, we care about those who often don't have voices to speak for themselves and we'll join hands. I mean, Dr. Moore and I, are we have actually done work together. Our organizations have done work together around common concerns that were humanitarian concerns that come out of our faith. We didn't do it just because we're social do-gooders. We did it because Jesus, well, I, you don't want me to preach, but you know what I'm saying. I mean, <laughs> We do want I'm, you to preach, but we don't have time. <laughs> we don't have time, no. <laughs> uh, well, well but, but to the point you just made, I, you know, something I'm aware of as somebody in media is there's so much of the story of our time and the generative story of our time is just not told. A light is not, sh- not shining on it. So to to your point, I mean, I, and I don't think people know how many what would feel like counterintuitive uh, collaborations there are on matters like immigration and criminal justice reform and mm-hmm. ecology mm-hmm. that are happening between the Southern Baptist Convention and and Episcopalians and 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 other faiths. Um, I don't know, but I interrupt. I don't know, uh, Doctor Moore. I- Yes, and I think that only can happen uh, when we have groups that will say, we might not agree on anything else except this. And so we can argue about a thousand other things when we're on our way to work together on this one thing, but we can agree on that one thing. And Mm -hmm. sometimes what we find is that we have more agreement than we thought. Sometimes Mm -hmm. we find that we have more disagreement than we thought, but it's only by being in that kind of conversation with one another. I can't speak for anyone else's community. I can only speak for for mine. And what I hope for is a long-term view of life. And by long term, I mean trillions of years, uh, which is to say, as a people who really do believe in a heaven and a hell uh, and a, a resurrection from the dead, to see that life uh, life is not just the scarcity of trying to grab onto whatever my career is or whatever my reputation is at the moment. And I think there's some people who would caricature that as well. If you believe in a life to come, then that means that you just don't pay attention to what's going on around you right now. I find the reverse is true. You're able to pay attention and to care about uh, the life that you have now because it's not ultimate, because I can pour myself out and, and risk myself in love for others and in conviction to the truth uh, without believing that this is all there is. I, I think that's what I, I pray and hope for for my own community. Mm. Mm. We have exactly four minutes left. Um, and what I want to ask you as we finish is um, how the young inside each of your denominations is questioning and pushing as the young are wont to do um, to make good trouble, as John Lewis said. Um, how, how will their how, how are you you know, what are their questions in their energy and, and how, how do you see that shaping? As, how are you accompanying that and being accompanied by that as you think about the healing for our country ahead? 
Um, whoever wants to go first can go first. Well, I, I'm really encouraged by what I see in the next generation of conservative evangelicals because they have come of age in a time where they never expected to be immediately understood. Uh, they're they're immediately countercultural by the fact that they uh, that they believe in the authority of Scripture, that they believe in uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they're they're accustomed to people saying, "I think that sounds crazy to me." You mean uh, as which opposed have, to the world kind of we grew up in, which was a Christian yes. nation? Yeah. Yes, where everyone uh, sort of expected to be Christian unless unless proven otherwise. Yeah. Uh, they're not in that kind of a world, which means they're in a world that's very similar to the world into which uh, Christianity first emerged. Uh, where the the idea of a crucified Messiah who's raised from the dead sounded insane, uh, and that was exactly the point. This is something strange that has happened. So I find a, a great resilience uh, and a great sense of mission among the younger uh, people in in my tribe of the world that that brings me great hope. Whether that's on college campuses or in prison ministries or uh, or around the world. Uh, serving people, it gives me great hope. Are there con- are there conversations that they're driving forward, or priorities that they're kind of bringing uh, front and center that that might not have been there before? Yes, uh, and, and but where those conversations are coming is not from a desire. I think some people think of the young as looking for ways to dissent. Uh, what I find are Rather than that, young people who are looking for more consistency. Mm-hmm. Uh, the question is not, why do you believe so much? The question is, why are you not living up to what you say you believe? Mm-hmm. And, and I think especially when we've seen so many high-profile failures uh, in every institution, but also within the church, that's, a, that's a, a very good question. And I know that as someone who went through a spiritual crisis of my own at the age of 15, uh, of wondering, is Christianity just another marketing gimmick? Mm. And, and came to the understanding, no, I think this is the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, that that call for consistency and integrity, uh, that's what I see coming from our young. Mm. Bishop Kerr, you get the last word. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, you know, I, in a similar vein— um, maybe from a different set of young people, but some similarities are maybe some of the same. When when I saw young people, and it was mostly young people this summer after the killing of George Floyd, marching peacefully, uh, and they were marching peacefully, I realized something um, over time. First of all, it was the most diverse gathering I have ever seen in this. The civil rights movement wasn't that diverse. Mm -hmm. And even after Michael Brown and uh, Trayvon Martin and going way back, the, the marches weren't that. This was a diverse group of young people. And more than that, I realized something. These are young people from who haven't had civics in um, school. They haven't had, uh, they didn't take civics and all of that stuff. Um, and yet, what they were protesting was our failure to live up to the ideals and the values that we say constitute what America is really about. They were protesting that we would live, they were doing what Thomas Jefferson, if you will, and were doing in the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. They were protesting that America live up to the values you say you are. Christians live up to the values you say you hold. Religious folk live up to the values be who you, they were challenging us. Now that's prophetic witness, challenging us to be who we say we are. And I hear young people 
calling the church and calling religious communities. You say you're people of God and you say that God is love. Show me. Like it says in My Fair Lady, don't talk of love. Show me. Um, thank you both so much. Um, I believe that we that's, we're going to be joined. Um, I could keep going. You could keep preaching. But I think both of you have other places to be. But I'm so grateful for this. Um, It's been so nourishing. It's been edifying. Uh, I I use words like that. We all are longing for more spaces um, that leave us feeling that way. And it's possible. My thanks to um, Krista and to you both for a really wonderful conversation. so much to take away for me, so many notes I wrote down. Uh, I thank you both. Um, as we draw to a close today, I just want to thank everyone for joining us and to thank Keith Allred and the Institute for your partnership. Keith. Well, thank you, Dean Hallerith. And I just share, I like Krista, I'm struggling for the words to adequately describe it, nourishing, edifying, inspiring, also really grounded in the concrete and tough realities we face. And I just really appreciate that. Uh, Thank you, Krista. Thank you, Bishop Curry. Thank you, Dr. Moore and Dean Hallerith and the Washington National Cathedral. It's been a great pleasure to host this with you. Thank you all very much. Well, great. I think we get a few minutes to sort of try to see if we can do some summing up, if that's even possible. (laughs) Chris, what's your takeaway from that conversation? It was so multifaceted. Thank you for the great questions and the great questions that people sent in. Yeah, the great questions. In fact, I have to say, this is I've done a lot on Zoom these last nine months, but I have this is actually the first time I've done an interview like this for the show. Um, and with two people and with two with two big personalities talking about the hardest things. So um, but I just want to say it was uh, quite, it, it's a little bit distracting, but in the best way to see that the chat button is here. So I was watching, you know, the, the interaction and, and all the response and, and the breadth of people. And, um, I just, it, it, it's so important and so necessary, um, to, to take what is before us out of the very narrowing, impoverishing frames that we have for talking about important subjects and talking about something like how we start to heal, uh, which is not landing easily for a lot of people after all the pain and all the vitriol. Uh, And we've kind of, we've really flexed those muscles, as they said, on every side. So to really pull back, to come at all of this from a completely different direction um, with these people of great integrity, um, and wisdom um, and grounding, uh, I, I just think that's, that's a gift. It, it, it creates space for us all to, um, to bring ourselves differently. To, 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 even if we're disagreeing, we're disagreeing with something different, right? To ask a different set of questions, to respond. But I think the, the way these two, and I think our traditions at their best, Always, always, beliefs and convictions are embedded in practices of living and how you conduct yourself, right? 
and and these very challenging ideas in Christianity in particular that that we are shaped as much by who our enemies are and how we treat them as we are shaped by who we love and who we call friends and who we call community. Um, and so I just feel like we got a taste of that. And it's so additive because the work ahead of us, as was said, is large and it is long. So well said. In our culture, which is so binary these days, we get pulled to one direction or another. Mm-hmm. And folks won't allow you not to be in one direction or another. And so your comments about the need to create space and the space that you created today in this conversation to be able to look at a different way of being with one another um, was a real gift. Thank Mm. you. That's just such an honor. It's a gift to me. Thank you so much for making this happen. And it's just, I mean, it's been such a such an extraordinary year, right? That we've all lived through together. Um, with very different circumstances, but we've we've been reminded, as our traditions have told us all along, that um, the ground beneath our feet is never as solid as we believed it to be, um, and that we do. Then, we, when we're faced with that reality, we do ask questions of meaning. We ask questions of what is essential and non-essential, and how we spend our time, and how to befriend our own inner lives. Um, so, thank you for creating this space for bringing some of that, uh, letting some of that, giving voice to some of that. And I did so appreciate the quality of the questions that came in. Um, You know, so many more of us are ready, ready to step into healing, ready to get uncomfortable and figure out what that means. And I do feel like these two uh, leaders um, really, you know, model that as much as they teach about it. I think, you know, even... Even even when 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 Dr. Moore talked about just finding one thing you one thing you can talk about that that's okay that you that it's okay if you disagree on ninety nine things and there's one subject that you both feel passionate to have passion around and curiosity around that that's a perfectly reasonable and good place to begin. Well, Krista, again, you know, thank you for creating that space and, and moderating this so well. It, it did feel like, you know, over the through the election and reaching back decades, it feels like we have so exercised those muscles mm. of uh, focusing on our our differences. And I, you know, you started to feel like today may, maybe we could turn a corner, turn a page, and and start to reach out. I I really feel fortified today mm. uh, in that conviction and. I uh, want to thank you again for joining uh, with this. I might just uh, offer a few uh, concluding remarks for everybody. I see uh, a number of comments in the chat, which I really appreciate that you uh, you enjoyed the conversation as well and uh, would like to have access to it and share it with others. Uh, so it is available uh, on the website for this event. And uh, Cheryl, if you would post that again in the chat that recording will remain up on that uh, website uh, going on into the future so please share that with others and uh, if the conversation has been as fortifying for you we uh, we invite you to yeah, continue to share a sentence or two in the chat we see a lot of people doing that um, so I'll just wrap up with a few thoughts I I really mean it I, I feel fortified uh, today in my deep conviction that as Americans we can get to a better place by reaching across our divides and both advocate and listen with respect and love. 
we invite you to join us at NICD in this important work. You can go to goldenrule2020.org to find tools for individuals and congregations to, to have other experiences like this. NICD also has other programs that offer opportunities to build understanding across our differences and champion solutions wise enough to attract broad bipartisan support. All of those programs are available at nicd.arizona.edu, and that should be showing up in your chat. Uh, Cheryl is also posting in the chat the program-specific website addresses for each of those programs in the chat, so you can go directly to them. Uh, and again, Dean Hollerith and, and uh, all of the team at the National Cathedral, thanks to you. You've been great partners. Uh, we've really enjoyed working with you on this conversation. And we look forward to more. We are planning to have uh, more of these conversations uh, that uh, the National Cathedral and NICD will come together on. Um, and for all of you who have joined us today, I hope you'll stay tuned for those additional programs uh, that we're planning. If you registered, we'll send email notifications uh, for those programs. Uh, and if you're watching through uh, Facebook or the website, you can go to goldenrule2020.org slash healing divides and sign up to receive future notices so we can uh, let you know about those. Again, Cheryl is adding that to the chat. And if you want to see more conversations like this, please make a donation. The funds are shared equally between the cathedral and NICD to put these events on. And again, you can go to goldenrule2020.org slash healing divides to make a donation. So finally, thank you again for joining us today. Have a happy and safe Thanksgiving. God bless. Thank you all. <laughs>